You are listening to episode 7 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On today's episode, Terry, Zach, and Todd all reviewed the new Netflix film 1922. We also give our power rankings of the best snow movies of all time. Also coming up is round two of the Oscar trivia showdown between Todd and Zach, who will come out on top today. All this coming up on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for launch. There is a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I was going to say something that was not true. Obviously, I agree. We are go for launch. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. This is Terry Plucknett talking, and we are joined once again... To complete the uh, almost sideways tripod, we have Todd and Zach with us again. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. What's up? We are uh, we're recording this on a Saturday night after watching a full day of sports action. It's been a crazy day. Uh, Todd, what's stood out to you so far uh, today in sports? Uh, my Cornhuskers won a game. That is always a good. Yes. Thing. In dramatic fashion? Yes. It may have been Purdue, but at least they won. (laughs) Zach, how about you? Uh, Well, the Jayhawks only lost by 10 points, which is a moral victory for everyone. And somehow, miraculously, the Ducks won, uh, scoring 41 points with only having like 100 yards passing. So we're almost bowl eligible. Yeah, I have to mention. Go well within the spread there. That is awesome. That's, that is a hell of a parlay, dude. I, I Hey, I'm pumped. And also seeing the Beavers lose like that was pretty freaking sweet on Thursday night. I have to mention this. I saw it this week. Last week's uh, TCU-Kansas game on Fox was the lowest-rated nationally televised college football game ever. Sweet. Ever. Well... The last last few years, like they've been like super close, uh, which and the spreads have always been like five touchdowns, and they they somehow have stayed within like ten points. It's kind of weird. Yeah, and but three year, years ago I was <laughs> three years ago I was at the game where Kansas actually had a ten point lead over I think they were number five ranked team in the country TCU, and they lost that game thirty four to thirty, and the fans literally gave the Kansas football team a standing ovation at the end of the game. It was. Uh, a very moving scene. Well, and speaking that, of TCU, that is high expectations. <laughs> speaking of TCU, they end up losing today to Iowa State, and then Penn State loses to Ohio State. Um, I think does Iowa State have the two best victories of the season so far? Oklahoma winning at Columbus is still like number one for sure. I, my prediction is Iowa State will be in the top ten. Uh, come the college football rankings uh, this week. My prediction is that Alabama will be in the top ten. That's a solid bet. That's a solid bet. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Kansas won't be. That's my prediction. That That is also a solid bet. I wonder what All kind right. of odds I can get on that. Well, this is a movie podcast, not a sports podcast. We love talking sports so much we had to mention a little bit. To start our podcast today, we have uh, some more developing news. (laughs) 
around a story we have been following for the past few podcasts. Last podcast, we, we announced that the untitled Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel Day-Lewis film had a title, and that was Phantom Thread. In the last couple weeks, the first trailer has emerged. Uh, Todd, this is one of your Oscar favorites going into the Oscar season. What are your reactions to the trailer? I think uh, the trailer looks really good, but it, uh, I think Daniel Day-Lewis's performance seems really understated. I'm not sure if he's actually the favorite to win Best Actor anymore. He'll probably get nominated, but I don't think uh, he he'll, he'll have enough uh, juice in his performance to actually win the thing. But I'm sure it'll be good. It seems like he's tapping into the more of that like uh, Age of Innocence kind of uh, uh, side to his uh, his filmography. I'm so excited for this movie that I've decided to not watch the trailer because I'm just that pumped for it. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's complete BS because uh, I didn't have time to watch the trailer. But I'm giving it a media blackout anyway. Uh, an unintentional media blackout. I like it. Exactly. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I was just thinking, um, the performances Daniel Day-Lewis gets the most notoriety for are the performances where he's completely unrecognizable. And one of the first things I noticed about the trailer is I was looking at it and said, oh, Daniel Day-Lewis actually looks like Daniel Day-Lewis in this film, which means I'm predicting he's not going to win Best Actor. I mean, in, that's in a good nine, point. he didn't get nominated for the Golden Globes even, and that's a musical, and he looked just like Daniel Day-Lewis, just Italian. I know. He also, he also looked like Daniel Day-Lewis in uh, The Ballad of Jack and Rose, so no nomination there. Anyways... I, I think it does look like a fascinating movie. Paul Thomas Anderson always makes great stuff, and it'll be interesting to see um, what the movie looks like when it actually comes out. I think it's getting a limited re uh, release around Christmas time. Is that right, Todd? Yeah, yeah, and we probably won't see it until, like, February if yeah. it ever actually gets into the States. I have, I have two questions for you, Terry. The first question is, Daniel Day-Lewis' character in this movie is named Reynolds Woodcock. Does that mean he's related to Mr. Woodcock, played by uh, Billy Bob Thornton? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. I think I'm that's a good sure bet, too. I'm pretty sure we already too. knew that. Oh. I, okay, this is what happens when you give it a media blackout. I didn't know. That was probably in the trailer. Um my other question was, uh, I don't really believe that Dan... It's not really a question, it's more of a statement. I don't believe this is Daniel Day-Lewis' last film. I'm just going to put that out there. I think he's lying. I think he just wants to take some time off, go to his island, smoke some pot, paint a little bit, and then he'll be back in three years. I, 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 I think he's like Brett Favre. I think people just want to... He just wants people to beg him back, except he doesn't actually want them to go find him, because he's going to live in his mountains somewhere, but... Yeah, I, like, I, when's he coming out with his next movie? It's like five years later. He has another movie. Yeah, I don't think it's his last movie. I I doubt many people actually believe him, but he's saying it, so you got to follow through with it, I guess, a little bit. All right. So if you haven't seen it yet, look for the Phantom Thread trailer. It does look like a very good movie. Uh, before we move on any further with this podcast, we want to wrap something up from the last podcast. Zach, you're joining us for like every other podcast right now so our last podcast we had um quite the power ranking as we talked about um so we talked about the top biopic performances of the 21st century and i know you had some thoughts and you wanted to share a few names that would have been on your list 
Yeah, I thought it was a pretty cool list to come up with. Um, I'm just going to give my top five real fast, and I want you to completely uh, criticize and critique my list, rip it apart, because I'm, that's essentially what I did to yours when I was listening to it. Uh, number five on my list would be Leonardo DiCaprio and The Aviator. I can't remember if that made either of your lists, but uh, that's staggering if it didn't, because that I was an amazing Adams. performance. Oh, go. well, there you go. See, Adam Adam, and I are on the same wavelength here. Um, I think that gets really underlooked in Leo's oeuvre, and uh, it, he's fantastic. Name another actor that could have played that role. There's just there's not another actor that, that well, could have done it. Well, obviously, Warren Beatty, right? Um, sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, number four. Number four on my list is also an actor from a 2004 movie, uh, Sean Penn in The Assassination of Richard Nixon. Um, he plays a character, uh, a real-life figure named Samuel uh, Bick, who in 1974, I believe, uh, comes up with this plan to assassinate Richard Nixon. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a performance of someone that isn't really well-known in history, so it's a little hard to say that it's a straight, you know, biopic. Um, but he's phenomenal in it. It's like this psychologically ravaged individual, and his wife leaves him, and he doesn't, you know, he uh, he's not doing very well at his job. He's kind of like the William H. Macy character in Boogie Nights. Like, everything kind of around him just sucks, and um, he's kind of in this downward psychological spiral. It's an astonishing performance that also, like uh, Leo in, in The Aviator, kind of gets overlooked. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's it's a better performance by Sean Penn than in Mystic River or in Milk. Number three is Jack Black and Bernie from 2012. Um, he plays Bernie Tita, the uh, the beloved, warm-hearted uh, choir director slash uh, paramour of the Shirley MacLaine nasty old lady. Um, and uh, it's just a great performance. Um, he balances wit and humor and subtlety with a lot of kind of emotional uh, ambiguity with the, with the character. And uh, he also does some great uh, singing of gospel ballads, which is just awesome. Uh, number two on my list would be Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Uh, Terry, I, I know you had that one pretty yeah, high. Yeah, I, I did. Completely agree with you uh, with that list. Uh, that was uh, complete. Uh, he was completely shortchanged of an Oscar in 2001 uh, due to the politics. I mean, n nothing against Denzel, but... Give me a break. That was one of the great performances of all time. And number one, which might actually be, I think, if not the greatest biopic performance of all time, maybe the greatest performance of all time I've ever seen in a movie, is Charlie Theron in Monster, which somehow was off your list completely, Terry. I'm not really sure what you were smoking that day, but uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I, I still don't know why that didn't make my list. You had Meryl Streep and the Iron Lady over Charlize Theron and Monster, dude. I mean, what's going on there? <laughs> That's yeah. just lack of prep preparation right there. I, I will say, I wanted to have Leo from The Aviator on my list. Um, I chose Kate Blanchett's performance from The Aviator instead. That's why Leo didn't make my list. I mean, Kate Blanchett, that's just a kind of glorified, like, uh, you know, mimicry. I mean, that's the same reason I didn't have Philip Seymour Hoffman from Capote. It's like, I think there's a, there's a fine line between uh, just a, a mimic uh, of, a of, a, of a real life person versus like a full fledged performance that takes a lot of creativity. And I think that's what, like, especially Sean Penn and Jack Black, they didn't have a whole lot to work with necessarily. So they kind of made the character really their own. And I don't know. I think as an actor, I would, I think that's probably more of a challenge. But maybe it's just what impresses me more, I guess. All right. Because you have less to work on, so you have less to compare it to, so it is easier to impress you. Okay. That's cool. 
Yeah. I was thinking about um, using uh, maybe Michael Sarah and Seth Rogen in Superbad as great uh, biopic uh, characters, but I couldn't quite do it. They'd be my honorable mentions. I like those honorable Seth mentions. That's nice. I like that. I like it. Uh, before we go any further um, uh, and we get into our movie reviews, uh, we're going to try something a little new this time. Um, so much of what we watch and what we experience on a day-to-day basis is not necessarily a movie. It might be TV, it might be sports, it might be anything along those lines. So we wanted to just take a moment, just take a few minutes to talk about the best thing that we've seen over the last two weeks since the last time we were with you. Uh, Todd, why don't you start us off? What's the best thing you've seen? Uh... In the last two days, I kind of binge-watched a Netflix show called American Vandal, and that was uh, pretty amazing. It's like, uh, if you've seen Serial or The Jinx or Making a Murderer, it's sort of that, except in the vein of Superbad. Like, the crime is uh, a high school student went around and drew, or spray-painted dicks on 27 staff cars and there was a sophomore at the school who was trying to uncover the mystery and it is told exactly like like those shows would and it has all the detail and all of the idiosyncrasies of that with this like absurd premise and it is absolutely awesome it is on netflix and it is the best eight hours or actually no eight episodes half hour episodes four hours that you will have right now all right. All right. Zach, what's the best thing you've seen over the last two weeks? Uh, the best thing I've seen the last two weeks is the latest film from the Dardenne brothers from Belgium, Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne. Um, their, their latest film is called The Unknown Girl. It was my number two most anticipated film last year, but it didn't really get a theatrical release in the United States until this year. Um, I wouldn't say it's the best film that they've done. Um, two Days, One Night was my number one film of 2014. This isn't quite as good, but it's still really excellent. If you know their kind of aesthetic style, you'll recognize it immediately. It's very minimalist, a lot of handheld cameras, non-professional actors. Um, and it tells the story of this uh, female, young young female doctor um, in this kind of small town uh, that's sort of economically depressed, which is the kind of setting that they have in a lot of their films. And uh, without giving too much of the plot away, she's um, she's sort of a witness, she's not exactly an wi- eyewitness, but she's a witness to a murder. And she, she kind of circumvents the police and does some investigating of her own about why this murder occurs or why this death occurs. Um, and it kind of leads to uh, questioning of her own values and beliefs. And um, it's really excellent. I mean, the Dardans are so good at sewing, showing the socioeconomic divides in France, and um, the acting is really sublime in this film. And uh, if you're a Dardenne fan, it's going to, uh, you know, be wonderful. It didn't get as great of reviews coming out of Cannes last year. I'm not really sure why, but um, it's really solid uh, entertainment, and the Dardenne brothers are two of the best filmmakers in the world. So highly recommended. All right. Uh, the best thing I've seen, I I could say the World Series because every game of this World Series so far has been an absolute classic and it's been so much fun to watch. But what I'm going to say is more of a rediscovery that I've had over the last couple weeks. Uh, when I get to the end of my day after a full work day and then once I get home and chase the toddler around for a little while, uh, I just need something to just kind of wind me down and wind my day down. 
And so what we've been doing uh, over the last couple weeks is we've binge-watched the first two seasons of the 80s sitcom Cheers. And it has been so much fun. I forget how much I love that show. Watching Sam and Diane and Carla and Norm and Cliff and all the fun they have in the bar. Uh, It's a great show. If you've never seen it before... The whole series, all 11 seasons are on Netflix. We're going to keep watching it until we get through it all. But highly recommend Cheers if you're one of those that is too young to remember it when it was on TV. So the real question is, does your who is your toddler's favorite character? I mean, does he love Norm? Does he love Cliff? Does he love Coach? We, we, always, we always watch it once he's in bed. Oh. Uh, so he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know about the show yet. Um... However, he did have a birthday this last week, and he now officially has about five Elmo dolls. So I, there, he does have that going for him. <laughs> and an awesome Mariner's bat. And an awesome Mariner's bat. Thank you for that, Todd. If you're listening to us, thank you so much uh, for listening. If you're listening on iTunes, please rate and review us. That's how we get uh, bumped up on some of the lists so we can be heard by more people. Um subscribe to us so you can be alerted when uh, new stuff comes out you can find us on almostsideways.com where you can see all of our uh, all of our ratings and reviews for all films that we've seen you can find us on facebook you can find most of us on twitter except for todd Uh, just search for us by name also you can find us on youtube with Adam's uh, YouTube channel, which I heard just today he hit 500 subscribers on YouTube. So congratulations, Adam. Keep up the good work there. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about Adam a little later on the podcast. But for right now, let's get to our movie reviews. I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances. He saved the day! Movie reviews! For this uh, podcast, we all decided to watch the same movie so we can talk about it together. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of great stuff coming out in theaters right now, so we decided to go with a movie that was just released on Netflix that uh, kind of fits the theme of it being uh, Halloween weekend or the weekend before Halloween. Todd, why don't you get us start off on talking about uh, the film we're going to be looking at. All right, uh, the film we decided to watch is a Netflix original movie. It's called 1922, directed by Zach Hilditch. And this marks the fourth Stephen King adaptation of 2017 after It, Gerald's Game, and The Dark Tower. It's a short story by Stephen King. It's about a farmer in Nebraska named Wilfred, whose wife, Arlette, uh, was left a large farming plot nearby, and he, uh, or uh, she wants to sell the plot and move to the city, but she wants to sell it to a slaughterhouse, and he, uh, that would be horrible for his business, and he doesn't want to actually move to the city, so he decides going to murder his wife and, uh, have his son help, and, uh, he's, uh, sort of, uh, haunted physically and psychologically uh, by that decision. Uh, this is not, like, a great Stephen King adaptation. It's, it's like, a sort of a thin plot. I think it would be better as, like, a, a short uh, episode in, like, Nightmares and Dreamscapes or something like that. And it's also uh, a Netflix movie, 
uh, but you can't really tell by the look of it. Like, this and Gerald's game sort of look like actual theatrical releases, not like a made-for-TV movie. And it's also sort of like a really slow, uh, a slow burn, which isn't normally a bad thing, but, like, there's a lot of violence that's, like, really over the top that kind of makes it seem like it's sort of a drag between, like, the the plot flare-ups in the movie, at least in my, in my opinion, and, uh, like, that sort of tonal inconsistency is not, is not really appealing to me, and, uh, I don't know, Tom Jane is the lead in the movie, and he's really good, I don't actually think it might, I think it might be his best performance, he's, like, really brooding and, uh, and angry, and, uh, he makes you feel like you're kind of being tormented along with him, and, uh, I don't know, it's got a lot of, like, the classic Stephen King cues, like, uh, the voiceover narration come down, and the flashback sequences, and Tom Jane abusing his child, of course. I, I don't know, it's, it's not a bad movie, it's really kind of claustrophobic, and, uh, it's, I mean, it, it does sort of, like, slowly go toward its conclusion, which Gerald's Game sorted it too, but that had a better, like, core, so it wasn't as that big of a deal. Uh, but, I don't know, overall, I, I think it's moderately satisfying, I give it a two stars. Zach, what do you think? Okay, well, I definitely give this movie a uh, thumbs up. I would give it uh, a higher rating than Todd. I would probably go three and a half. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I was actually kind of blown away by it. Um, I would completely second Todd's opinion that uh, Thomas Jane is amazing in this film. Um, it's uh, one of those uh, performances that he just completely envelops himself in, and I think he's somewhat unrecognizable in it. He has His accent is spot on, and the character is this really kind of dark, deranged figure who has this kind of oddly moral philosophy throughout the film because he... It's not like his his uh, his carnivorous behavior is out of like uh, desire for money or desire for you know greed or lust or anything like that. But he wants to kind of honor this sort of chivalric masculine code in a strange perverse way. Um, so the character is really fascinating. The movie really gets gets under your skin. Um, you know. Uh, maybe this is the highest compliment you could give a Stephen King movie, but if there was a flaw in the movie, I almost wish that the movie didn't have horror as this undertone, because especially in the second half of the movie where he starts having these delusions of seeing his uh, his wife, and I guess we're, we're drifting into spoiler territory here, those ultimately kind of take away a little bit from the kind of psychological interest of the character. I mean, I, I like seeing this guy suffer sort of on his own. I didn't think it was really necessary for his wife to kind of reemerge from the dead and have to whisper all these things to him. Um, there are obviously severe moral consequences for what he perpetrates in the film, and I think the movie is ultimately about that. And that's and uh, you can also kind of tell that that's a sort of novella thing, because it's ultimately about how this one ridiculously stupid act leads to horrible consequences for all these people around him. Um, so I almost felt like the horror aspect, especially the rats and maybe some of the over-the-top CGI that, that Todd might be talking about, was a little unnecessary. But that aside, I really got into this movie. I mean, I actually thought it got better as it went along. I liked seeing how this this web, this interconnected web of um, characters all get affected by this one event, and there are very real consequences for what uh, this character uh, undertakes in the film. So... Um, you know, it's maybe it's light Stephen King. It's not necessarily about demonic forces trying to take over the world like, you know, uh, The Mist or um, The Stand or anything like that. But as a, as a sort of acute psychological study, I think it ranks up there with, like, misery, you know, in the dead zone. Uh, really uh, outstanding stuff. And I would also agree with Todd that it doesn't look like a Netflix film. It looks like a theatrical film. So kudos to the director and kudos to the cast. Very well done. 
So I, I, I've heard you guys have been taking bets on, uh, on which side I would fall on the love or hate side on this. And as usual, Todd's on one end, Zach's on the other, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle. And that's where I'm at on this film. Uh, I liked parts of it. I really appreciated the idea of it. I felt like the, uh, the story was better in theory than it kind of was in execution. Zach, I agree with you about the uh, the horror in the, sec the second half of the, the movie. It really was distracting and wasn't needed. Um, it would have been much better if it had stayed more in the psychological realm instead of trying to bring out this horror side of it. Uh, because of that, I think one of the things I noticed about it, the music I thought was really distracting and mismatched. Um, the, uh, the music was more something you would hear in like a jump scare movie, a really scary movie, or uh, or something like that. Not necessarily in this, it really, I felt like it didn't fit and it was distracting because it was giving you the wrong mood for what was actually going on in the film. Um, I also agree, Thomas Jane, possibly his best performance, completely unrecognizable. If I didn't know that was him, I, I wouldn't have realized that that was him. Uh, absolutely incredible. But yeah, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle on this. It was something where after I watched I didn't quite know what to think or where to put it. Um, I'm going with two and a half stars right in the middle uh, between you guys. That's where, that's where I have it. Um, I thought it was a really good concept. I really liked the performances. Um, it could have been a lot better. One of the things, Zach, you were mentioning... Um, some of the stuff where the wife, the wife comes back from the dead and whispers to him. There's a, there's a point in the movie where, um, where she comes and I'm not, I don't think I'm spoiling too much, but she comes back and whispers like what it, uh, what's happening with some of the other characters in other spots. And I thought that that was almost too, uh, too contrived of a moment there. I thought it was, it was completely unnecessary. And if anything, what it, would have been interesting is instead of her telling him what was going on lead hit that moment leading him in the wrong direction where he thinks something happened that really didn't and it continuing to eat at his psychosis as he's falling into this madness almost yeah but uh... You know, I, I could live with it, though, because I, I would agree with you that maybe it's a little unrealistic about exactly what happens to the two characters he's referring to. Like, especially the scene where the reporters come in on the train. Yeah, that's that's kind of ridiculous and sort of unconvincing. But, I mean, the whole movie is about the consequences that, that, that happens that is completely unforeseen as a result of this guy doing this act. And it's completely unpredictable what, what happens. You couldn't have seen any of that stuff coming in terms of how it affects not just his life, but the neighbors' lives and the people in the town um, and it's really fascinating to think of that just this one event has these enormous repercussions and there are real moral consequences for this so I really got into it I, I thought it was fascinating the, the, the turns that this film took and it I thought it got kind of better in the second half. I, I was surprised how early this killing occurred in the film. I thought like the, it was going to be the climax. I thought it was building up to that. But when it happens, it's like, well, what's going to happen in the rest of this film? And it goes in these directions that are pretty psychologically unique and interesting. So I, you, you guys both missed the boat on this one. I think this is absolutely one of the best Stephen King adaptations uh, of recent years and much better than it. This should have been the theater and this, this should have been the film in theaters. Well, and, and, I, and I agree on a lot of the stuff you're saying. Some of the things that you said were detractors, 
are harder for me to get over. I think that's just where I'm at with it. Okay, um, that's fair. Yeah, that that that's what that's what brings it down. Because I agree, it's a fascinating concept. It's a fascinating story, but the way it's told, I had too many problems with. Yeah, I was kind of the same way. I got like I said, it was a slow burn, but it, it yeah, it played like a horror movie, and I don't really think that was the right way to go. And honestly, I think Gerald's game is better than it and this movie, and that should have been the theatrical release, but that never would have been because it's way too, like, condensed of a, a plot line. But, I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate this movie, but I just, I, I can't actually, I can't take it that seriously. I, I don't believe the Sun character, most of all, like, I, I like I couldn't get over that. I I don't I I do not understand that character's motives. What don't you understand about him? I thought he was a very realistic character. I thought he was really well drawn. Like, yeah, he's a kid that you know listens to his father, and his father has this kind of perverse idea about masculinity, you know, and wanting to share you know the house with. What's the point of having the farm if it's not given to his son? I think that's a really good line in the film. And so the son goes through these sort of, uh, you know, he's he's not sure whether he believes his dad, and then ultimately he decides to go against his dad. Like, what's unconvincing about that? Is it the actor? Like, I thought the character was well well drawn. I don't know, I feel like you could make the same argument about the Sun character in A History of Violence, but that's a different story. Maybe. <laughs> wow, way to bring out A History of Violence. I think that, I think A History of Violence has come up in every podcast that Zach has been a part of so far. <laughs> we should just, we should just make that like a running thing. How many different ways can A History of Violence be brought up in our podcast? That's a great point. Well, before we were joking that we should just have a live stream of us rewatching a history of violence, and that should just be our next episode. One one thing that I'll say about this movie is it's very encouraging when you have films like this, and and Gerald's Game, and Todd, the the movie you um, you reviewed last week. I forget what it was called. Uh, the Netflix film oh, with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, that one. Um, it's encouraging to see such quality starting to come out of these Netflix original movies and I actually just saw recently that Netflix is planning to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80 original films come out next year um, this is really starting to become a a conduit of good filmmaking and good movies and even though this one I think it may have missed the mark a little bit it's something that you know you can find good um, good films on Netflix now that aren't going to be seen anywhere else instead of just the ridiculous six or whatever the Adam Sandler movies are called. Um, this kind of piggybacks on what you're saying, but yeah, there was an article last week that said that Netflix is spending, I think, is it in the neighborhood of $8 billion next year on original programming and films, so, I mean, if you do the math, yeah, that's somewhere like 70 to 80 feature films, and if there are films like this, that's completely encouraging, because this is a film that there's no reason it shouldn't have had a theatrical release, um, but I'm glad it got made, it's, you know, not the most well-known Stephen King novellas or Stephen King story, but I thought it made really great cinematic material, um, and it's the type of story that absolutely deserves cinematic treatment. So it's cool to see directors like this guy, uh, Zach Hild Hild uh, excuse me, Zach Hilditch, um, get a shot at it because uh, you know and this isn't necessarily an A-list cast either. So hopefully Netflix is encouraging this. I have not seen Gerald's Game yet, uh, but um, I've heard great things about it. Uh, all right, so our reviews are kind of across the board here. Todd, you gave two stars. I gave two and a half. Zach gave three and a half. 
depending on who you listen to, you should go see this movie. I think it's worth a it's worth a watch if this is the type of film that uh, that you like. If you don't like these types of films, you probably shouldn't watch it. All right, moving forward, we have uh, some anniversaries to look at as we're getting ready for the month of November to start, which is crazy to think about that we are almost done with 2017 already. Uh, but we're going to look at some movie celebrating anniversaries uh, in the month of November. Uh, Zach, why don't you start us off on this one? Okay, so 10 years ago, uh, this uh, month, November of 2007, there was an, yet another Stephen King adaptation that was in theaters, also starring uh, one Thomas Jane. And this film was called The Mist. And The Mist, uh, to me, uh, you know, I haven't revisited it since 2007, I'll be perfectly honest, but at the time that I saw it, and I think I'm going to still stand by this uh, assessment, I called it one of the five worst films I'd ever seen. Um, it was like a, a spectacle of awfulness, it, just one awful component after another. The characters were uh, so poorly developed. The concept was that this, uh, this big storm kind of overtakes this small coastal community, which, by the way, is like the plot of about five or six different Stephen King uh, stories or, or novels. Um, but this time, uh, it, it's like sort of a, uh, uh, an alien force that, that comes, and these people are stranded in a supermarket. And so it kind of becomes uh, like, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of an Agatha Christie-type thing, like characters are kind of disappearing, and then they're kind of, uh, you know, they think that another person is responsible. And then in the middle of all of this mess is a character played by Marsha Gay Harden, who is this, like, religious fanatic. And uh, she spouts these hilarious cliches, you know, at all these characters. And, um, boy, it was, a, it was a total mess. I mean, it was, uh, you know, Stephen King has sometimes done campy, and I think this was intended to be campy, um, so that just undermined any kind of psychological or dramatic believability about the story, um, and it also I, the the biggest thing that strikes out to, that stands out to me is the ending, which I think is just truly one of the most catastrophic endings uh, I've ever seen in any film. In fact, I even think I like wrote something on Facebook about it, like how horrible it was. And this was, of course, you know, in the early days of Facebook when people didn't really know how to use it, and uh, it was a film that angered and just uh, made me question whether I should watch movies ever again. I think after seeing that movie, I took like a four week hiatus from watching movies because of how angry I was watching it. So 10 years later, um, still some vivid memories of it, and uh, see it if you dare, but I think it's one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah, what made that one even more disappointing was it was also Frank Darabont coming off of some, Very of, true. some of the great work that he had done. Um, Stephen however, King work our boy, that he had done. Yeah, it's his Stephen King work that he'd done, yeah. Um, however, it does, it does have our... our uh, our boy Nathan Gamble in it, so it does have that going for it. True. I have a, I have one movie I just want to kind of give a shout out to before I go to my actual anniversary. Uh, ten years ago, uh, this November, American Gangster came out. Um, the uh, gangster movie with Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe. I just want to throw that out there, uh, not necessarily because it's the movie I want to focus on, but it uh, had one of my my favorite movie going experiences zach and i went uh drove for like 45 minutes to find a theater to go see this and we did a double feature of american gangster and goodfellas on the same night you remember this zach sure and it was to tiger do you remember that theater yes i do Tigered? but yeah double feature of american gangster and goodfellas one of my favorite movie going experiences of, of all time it was it was just a blast 
Uh, but the film I do want to talk about, this is the 25th anniversary this November of a film that was basically my childhood in a lot of ways, and that is Aladdin. Possibly my favorite of the classic Disney animated films. Um, such a great movie. It brought to us one of the greatest Disney characters of all time, and that is the genie brought to us by Robin Williams. Uh, I'm kind of scared to see what this re live-action remake is going to bring to us and how, if it's going to be able to do it justice, is it going to just completely ruin it? I don't know. But Aladdin is one of my all-time favorites, probably my favorite of the uh, classic Disney animated films. And uh, 25 years ago this month, pretty crazy. All right, and my choice... Uh, for the milestone movie is the 50th anniversary of Martin Scorsese's directorial debut, Who's That Knocking at My Door? It came out in 1967, which uh, wasn't widely distributed until the next year, but it actually first came out in 1967, November, so it qualifies. Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of a dry run for Mean Streets, but uh, there's a lot more to it. It's also it stars Javier Keitel, and it's also one of his best performances, which is actually his first performance. He's uh, Italian American in New York, and he parties and hangs out with his group of friends, and he meets a girl, but he doesn't want to sleep with her until he gets married because he thinks she's a virgin. But she was actually uh, she's actually raped before, and he, that's why she's really shy. So there's like this sort of classic Scorsese, like, inner turmoil, difficult decision for his protagonist, and, uh, we get to sit back and see, like, how he responds and stuff, and it's got a lot of classic Scorsese in it, the, the Catholic guilt, and, uh, like, the really raw, lifelike editing, and, uh, talk about movies, sexual repression, and all that. It, it's, like, a really great launching point for Scorsese, and it's one of his most underappreciated films and is uh was my number two of 1968 it's a it's a really good movie if you haven't seen it yeah and what's really cool about it too is like you can see that scorsese had like cinematic influences from like the french new wave because there's a lot of like really experimental transitions and camera work in it a lot of handheld kind of stuff so it's kind of easy to see where this kind of kind of movie brat mentality comes from and I don't know, I recently saw it actually within the last year, and I think it's a little jumbled and it's a little messy, but of course it's uh, so important to see as a milestone, as a, as a Scorsese fan. Um, but I think it more than a Scorsese film, it really stands out as a late 1960s auteur film, marking the beginning of, a mo of the movement where directors like Coppola and uh, De Palma and Chimino really made their own kind of individual marks on that, this kind of create creativity in filmmaking. So, uh, absolutely Absolutely. Re really cool movie to see again. All yeah. right. So, uh, some good films to go back and revisit. Uh, and one atrocious film. But uh, we yeah, have the... awful. <laughs> we have the 10-year anniversary of both The Mist and American Gangster. 25 years of Aladdin and 50 years of Who's That Knocking at My Door. All right. Now it's time for Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Exactly. Power rankings. So last time on our podcast, uh, Todd and I had a little uh, a little competition going on surrounding our power rankings. 
which Todd completely destroyed me at. So he got to pick this week's topic for our power rankings. And Todd, I'm going to let you explain what our topic is for today. All right. Uh, so given the recent release and box office bomb of The Snowman and the upcoming release in November of Murder on the Orient Express, we are talking about the top five movies that are set in the snow. And uh, that can lead a lot of different ways. It can be like pivotal scenes in the snow, majority of movies in the snow. Uh, but we'll see what, what everyone comes up with. Okay, so uh, so let's let's uh, before we hop into our our power rankings here, let's uh, let's give predictions on how many overlap we think uh, will happen here. Uh, we always kind of give the over under two and a half. Um, Zach, where do you think this is going to fall? How, how many are going to overlap on the three lists? Zero. Given a big fat zero. All right, Todd. What do you think? I'm I'm gonna say under. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's gonna be like one or zero. <laughs> okay, I got I gotta say something different. So I'm gonna say two because I do not have very much faith in this, and I always go the over and I always get destroyed. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna go two. So we got zero, one, and two. It's a classic inexperienced gambler right there. Exactly, exactly. I want to be different. I want to be different. Um. <laughs> Also, at the end of this, after we give our lists, we have a new competition coming up uh, that we will talk about when we get to the end, but stay tuned for that. Um, Zach, start us off with your number five. My number five snow film comes from 2001 from the great country of Canada, and the title of the film is Atanajrat, The Fast Runner, uh, actually recently voted the all-time greatest Canadian film, uh, made by an entirely indigenous uh, film crew and cast. The director was Zacharias Canuck, and the film tells the story of an Inuit legend of an evil spirit causing strife in the community and one warrior's endurance and battle of its menace. And this is a really awesome movie. Um, really, uh, it's, it's kind of timeless. You can't really tell uh, when it takes place, whether it's a recent uh, historical setting or really in, in the past. And it's this great look at uh, this life in this village. And the centerpiece of this film is this amazing chase where the lead character, Atanajrat, has to run naked across the entire Arctic uh, barren landscape. Um, and it's just a really cool film. Indigenous films don't get enough uh, publicity, and this was uh, one of the most widely publicized ones when it came out in the early 2000s. Um, honestly, I haven't seen it in a while, so I apologize for being a little vague with the details. I remember more of the images than the story, um, and it's just a really cool movie to see. It was a, an amazing theatrical experience. It's three hours long. See it on the big screen, but the snow and the Arctic setting was overpowering, which is why when you told me that we're going to do a snow films list, this was one of the first films that came to mind. All right. Zach, you never disappoint. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll go next. My, uh, my list, I took a, a different approach on this than, than I normally do. I went with, with some of my favorite movies, my personal favorites. If I were to go with the, uh, the best uh, film set in snow, it would be a list that looks very different. Oh, by the way, we forgot to mention, this is... The top five snow movies not named Fargo. We we disqualified that because it was going to be number one on everyone's list. Anyways, so with that said, hmm. the number five uh, the number five film on my list 
is the 1980s classic Rocky IV. Um, Sylvester Stallone has to go to the Soviet Union and take on the roided-up uh, Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren. It is so much fun uh, watching him run through the snow and train in this uh, in this old dilapidated shack. And he comes up and he beats them. And he has that speech that uh, that he gives at the end that's constantly being translated into Russian. And uh, it, it's 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 an awesomely bad movie. I love it. Rocky Four. So can we just say that when uh, right before we we aired this podcast, Todd totally called that film being on your list. <laughs> Absolutely nailed it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, you said you you're pretty sure you knew what my list was, so there you go. There's there's one. Yeah, that yeah that notches one off that list. Okay. <laughs> we should have gave the over under on how many you would have correctly predicted off of my list. <laughs> <laughs> off all of your lists, really. Yeah, okay. really, really, yeah. All right. Okay, my number five. Uh, it seemed like a good place to start since uh, the director was one of the inspirations for the list. That is Tomas Alfredson's "Let the Right One In." Uh, it's the story of uh, a young kid named Oscar and a uh, vampire named Ellie who became friends in uh, in the midst of a string of serial killer murders in Sweden. And it's a beautiful, mysterious movie, and uh, it's really dark and kind of romantic. I and um, the remake was one of Zach's favorite movies, uh, his number one of 2010, if I don't mistake. And which is good in its own right, but it's a sort of a shot-for-shot remake. And this one's objectively better in every single way, uh, despite what he might tell you. So uh, this is uh, that is my number five snow movie. <laughs> Zach, do you have a response uh, to that? Uh, yeah, well, I think it leads into my number four film quite seamlessly. Uh, my number four film, I'm going to take a bit of a audible here. My number four film originally was Snow Dogs with Cuba Gooding Jr., but I'm actually going to make it now uh, Let Me In from 2010 uh, by Matt Reeves, um, the remake of Todd's number five film by Thomas Alfredson. And by the way, uh, it's worth noting that Alfredson uh, is the uh, person who directed uh, the, the Snowman, so uh, we know where his career has gone. Um, but Let Me In, um, you're right, it's, a, it's essentially a shot-for-shot English version remake of let let the right one in um i guess the reason i like let me in a, uh, a little bit more is that there's less of a focus on the ancillary characters in, as there is in the in the original swedish version it's a little bit narratively tighter um i think the characters are a little bit better developed uh and maybe that's due to the fact i really like the kid actors in it's cody smith mcphee and chloe grace moretz um winners of the uh, best three-name child actor award i guess that year um but uh really cool cinematography well lit you know visually it has a similar palette to, to let the right one in I, it's essentially a cover version of it but i think some cover versions are better than the original and that's the case with let me in which uh, as todd said was my number one film of 2010 and i completely stand by it and it's a great film set in the snow all right whatever dude <laughs> <laughs> all right uh my number four actually before i get to my number four i have to say uh, for my for number five for awesomely bad '80s film set in the snow, Rocky Four just barely beat out Die Hard Two, Die Harder. 
another one. I I almost I almost said tied for fifth. Rocky Four and Die Hard Two. But that is not in the eighties either, by the way. What? That's nineteen ninety. That wasn't the eighties, but still. Same yeah, idea. Yeah, I get it right. Same idea. Anyways. Sorry to ruin your you ruin your uh, predictions there. I almost That's a just shot said to the heart. I almost said tied, but I didn't. <laughs> Anyways, number four on my list is a uh, is a film that I hear about way too much as a middle school teacher. However, I I can't deny the fact that I love it, and that is Frozen, the uh, the recent animated film. Uh, Todd, did you get that one too? <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> it's a great movie. It really is. It's got amazing music. Um, it's it's one that is set almost entirely in the snow. Olaf the snowman is one of the is one of the better Disney characters to come out of like the last what fifteen years or so. Uh, just a little sidekick character. I love that movie. It's so much fun, and so it's my number four. Whatever, Todd. Go ahead and predict my list. <laughs> well, he's predicting my list, too, so... It's just Nostradamus, I guess. Yeah, I got you guys nailed. <laughs> Alright, uh... Going to my number four is, uh... It's probably cheating, and I don't really care. It's, uh, a documentary from 2000 directed by George Butler, The Endurance, Shackleton's Legendary Antarctic Expedition. It is one of the best documentaries of the 2000s. It's about uh, Ernest Shackleton's 1914 quest to uh, become the first to ever cross the Atlantic. And uh, it eventually became a disaster and his ship was trapped and they somehow uh, survived the entire winter and were rescued. And uh, it's got archival footage. It's got uh, interviews that paint like a really vivid picture of what they were actually going through. And, uh, there are some live-action movies about the same events, but this one is better, and you pro should probably just, like, look it up and watch this instead, because it's awesome. Yeah, why see any remakes? Just always see the original, right, Todd? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's, you know, The Departed. Well, I'm trying to think back to any of the snow scenes in The Departed, but I don't remember. I remember, like, the scene with mounds and mounds of cocaine, but that wasn't snow. It was just white. What? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, that was a remake. Never mind. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were talking about that as a snow film. I'm confused. So, uh, so I guess Scarface is our number one snow film. Got it. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Blow is number two. <laughs> And then Wolf of Wall Street, of course. Gotta show up. Yes! That would be on the list. Or Behind the Scenes of Apocalypse Now would be on the list, too. That documentary. That's actually a really good list so far. Like, we should just keep going. Screw it. Right. What's your number three, Zach? Yeah, Zach, number three. Go. <laughs> okay, number three. Wow. All right. Uh, in keeping of the spirit of um, Zach's top five list of obscure films about snow, um, I'm going with a film from 2014 called Force Majeure, directed by Ruben Ostland. Um, really excellent film that takes place in the French Alps. It's about a family that goes on a ski trip, and uh, basically some they 
something somewhat catastrophic happens that looks a lot worse than what actually happens. And it's kind of about uh, how the characters react to this uh, in the moment, very tumultuous situation. Um, and one of the characters has this reaction that really bothers and disturbs a couple of the other characters in the film. And so it does, the film ultimately becomes not about that catastrophic event, but how people react to certain situations of extreme trauma or extreme tumult. And uh, so it's a much more kind of psychological uh, film, but it does take place in the snow and um, it's French. Well, it's not French, excuse me. I totally butchered that. I believe it's actually uh, Scandinavian. But um, it's uh, really cool. Um, and uh, if you like slow burn psychological European movies that take place in the snow, Force Majeure is uh, one of the better films. Well, I think see, you'll sure. be happy to know that Adam absolutely nailed that that would be on your list. So good job. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. I, don't, I also don't think that they did any smoking. Uh, or I, I don't think there's any cocaine on that film set. But That's unfortunate. Could be wrong. All right. My number three. Uh, I almost had a tie for number three also because there are two films from the same year that are forever connected in my head. Um, and that is because both uh, leads in these films were equally robbed of Oscar nominations and they were both had uh, somewhat of a snow theme. But the one I ended up putting in as number three is Into the Wild. The uh, based on true story of uh, Christopher McCandless, how he leaves his life behind and goes off to live a life in the Alaskan wilderness. Um, there isn't a whole lot of snow in this film, but it does end in the snow um, as you as you see him live out his his time out of this bus. Uh, McCandless is played to perfection by Emil Hirsch. Um, who, like I said, was robbed of an Oscar nomination for this film. Um, but I, I, I love this film. I love uh, everything about it. The music is amazing. Brought to you by Eddie Vedder. Um, Into the Wild, my number three. The Ooh. film that it w it's always tied to is Ryan Gosling's Lars and the Real Girl, um, which uh, he was also robbed for. And... Snow plays a less prominent role, but it is a snowy type movie. But anyways, number three, Into the Wild. Was that was that predicted, Todd? Yeah, that would have been on my list. No, I actually didn't uh, think that had enough snow, but uh, that would have been on my list too if uh, I thought it did. Yeah, I mean, aren't, is... aren't there scenes in like the Grand Canyon in that film? Like it takes place in Atlanta for most of it, right? I don't remember snow barely at all in that film. It was it's, really it's just where there. he died, necessarily. Like, the last, like, 20, 25 minutes are in snow. I say that's enough. I don't know. I mean, do you count Hal Holbrook's snowy uh, hair? Like, the white on his hair? That counts. <laughs> no? I'm going with it. Into the wild. It's still a Deal good choice, I guess. Alright, my number three is, which is the only movie I really thought that I had a chance to match with anybody, was... Uh, Another 2008 movie, and that is David Gordon Green's Snow Angels. And uh, I think I appreciate David Gordon Green more than most, pretty much anybody else, but he really has a way with his, like, dark independent dramas, and this one is about a group of characters set around, like, a, a really tragic event in a small town, and uh, you see it from, like, different, like, uh depressing sort of uh 
angles and like all the characters and how they're involved. Sam Rockwell gives one of his best performances ever, along with Kate Beckinsale also does, and young William Miller is also in it, and Olivia <laughs> Thirlby, they have like a really endearing, uh, <laughs> nerdy romance. That's He doesn't have a name. Nobody's he ever going to remember his real William. name, young, dude. Young William Miller. <laughs> no, he doesn't have a real and name. And he's 11. And, uh, <laughs> 11! <laughs> 11! <laughs> exactly. And, uh... I don't know, it's set in a really harsh winter in Pennsylvania, and, uh, that just really makes it that much more, like, horrible, the events, and it actually, as a key factor in, in the eventual, uh, explaining of what happened, so. Snow Angels is my number three. Doesn't this also mark the, the last film of David Gordon Green before he went crazy and started doing, like, The Sitter? No, he'd made Joe. Joe was a great movie. What was Joe set in the snow? Well, no, but it had Nicolas Cage. It was awesome. Well, there you go. How did you not watch that? Um, I have a media blackout on it, like the preview, so not, I, I'm not for allowed to see it. five years. But before we really? move on, just for everyone's reference, his name is Michael Angarano. But from now on, <laughs> he will always be referred to as Young William Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Zach, number two Okay, number two Is a film set in snow uh, From France uh, The title of the film is L'Enfant d'un Hole And the, uh, I guess the simplified English translation Of it is Sister And it's a film by a fabulous uh, Director named Ursula Meyer And it stars Lea Seydoux She was uh, probably most well known for uh, Being in Blue is the Warmest Color And she was a Bond girl In um, the recent Bond film Spectre uh, This is a film that is That takes place at the Swiss Alps And it's about uh, a brother and sister And Lea Seydoux plays the older sister She's kind of this irresponsible Sort of flighty uh, older sister type And she's actually sort of cared for By her younger brother Who's played in the film by a great actor Named Casey Mollett Klein and uh, the way that he is able to kind of finance their life because they live on their own, they're essentially orphans, is that he goes onto the slopes into this great ski resort and he actually uh, steals like the snowboards and the skis of the uh, expensive wealthy people that uh, hang out at the ski lodge. And so he trades them in on like the black market and he makes a profit off them. Um, and so the movie's kind of about their really dysfunctional relationship, how he, even though he's uh, substantially younger than his sister, he kind of has to be like the parent to her, like the, the like an older brother or father to her in a way. Um, so it's this really interesting look at this kind of unique sibling dynamic, and it also is very much about the socioeconomic divisions, because at the very top where all the snow is, is where all the rich people are, and where this kid steals all the skis and stuff, but they live at the bottom of the slope, which is not very snowy, and it's very barren, and, and uh, just uh, bl uh, bland and a, a kind of a rough place to live. Uh, really cool movie. Um, saw it on Netflix a few years ago. Uh, fabulous performances. And uh, if you're a fan of Lea Seydoux, if you're a fan of a contemporary French cinema, it's one to really check out. It kind of feels like a, a, a film that Francois Truffaut would make if he was still alive today. You can check another one off that I got right. That was on Zach's list. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I bet like three, two or three years ago when I saw that film, I begged you to see it. Did you ever? Did you ever actually see it? I can't remember. No, I didn't. Yeah, there you go. So don't get mad at me for not seeing Joe. <laughs> I can still get mad at you for not seeing Catch Me If You Can, though. You, you jerk. 
But it didn't. It, that film didn't have any snow in it, or any appearance by young William Miller. No, so. it did have snow. It Rest had like case. three scenes that were during Christmas. <laughs> uh, all right, we digress. <laughs> Number two on my list. Uh, it's going back to some uh, some uh, more childhood nostalgia here. It is Home Alone, the uh, the film about. I think Todd got that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Home Alone, uh, starring Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister, uh, hanging out at home all by himself as a seven or eight-year-old boy, and him fighting off the uh, the burglars played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. It's almost worth seeing just to see Joe Pesci try to have to uh, censor himself in a PG movie. Um, but it's, it's a wonderful film, so much fun to watch at any time of year. Uh, if you haven't seen it, what's wrong with you? Uh, go see Home Alone. My number two, Snow Movie. Alright, uh, that is a good choice. That actually was in my next, like, five or ten. Uh, that was next. Okay, my number two is, uh, a little bit more mainstream than my last few, and that is, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. 2004 by Michelle Gondry and uh, Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey are the stars. They play Clementine and Joel who decide to uh, delete uh, their memory of their relationship uh, in a new procedure that is being offered and uh, a great deal of the movie takes place in Joel's mind and uh, as he's getting the procedure and uh, a lot of it's covered in snow in New York and it's really darkly comedic and it's a, just a really good movie written by Charlie Kaufman. The snow setting really makes it a lot that much more romantic and authentic of a winter in New York City and I don't know. It's brilliant and ironically it actually gets better in your memory. So that is my number two. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So I have to interject for a second. I mean, you're mentioning, you know, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Into the Wild. I mean, I'm trying to choose movies that are like 100% snow. I, I, I mean, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind has like a couple scenes of snow, but they're kind of like minor in the film. So like, how does it, why is this on your list? Or maybe I interpreted the list the wrong way. This has more snow than Into the Wild, for sure, but I, I don't know. This was definitely the least snow that was in any of the movies that I chose, but I feel like the like those scenes were at least, like, half the movie. The scenes that were that he was remembering. <laughs> no, I, I, th I think it's a, it's, a, it's a valid choice. I mean, we talked about how Fargo couldn't be on the list, and Fargo isn't entirely in the snow either. Um... I don't know. I think it's good. But again, I'm the one that picked Into the Wild, which has five minutes of snow, and got ridiculed by the rest of you, so. <laughs> now, I'm just curious, because, like, when I came up with my list, I tried to think of films that were only set in the snow. Like, I mean, like, I understand, like, I think Internal Sunshine Spotless Mind is a really cool movie, but I don't necessarily think about the snow scenes. Like, the only snow scene I can really remember is when they wake up on in the bed on the beach in the snow. And that's in, like, his hallucinatory state, like, in his the mind. The opening but scene's in the snow, isn't it? Yeah. 
a lot of it's in the snow. I, I was trying to go with, like, movies that are majority in the snow, but apparently you remember that movie differently, but maybe your memory was deleted. I don't know. Exactly. That's a ba- That was the bad joke I was about to make. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Speaking of another bad joke you're about to make, you're number one. Oh, Let's yeah. see if I got three of your five right. I'll be curious Although to see I if you get this one, Todd. Okay, uh, well, my number one film that's set in the snow is, I guess, a, a little bit of um, a creative interpretation of it. Uh, I'm going with the first episode of Krzysztof Kieslowski's The Decalogue from 1988, uh, the great Polish uh, TV series. So technically this doesn't really constitute a film, uh, per se, like a theatrical film, but I cannot think of a, of a movie or visual story of any kind where snow and cold weather was more important. Um, the Decalogue is a 10-hour miniseries, and each episode is based off of one of the Ten Commandments. And so this first episode, which is based off the First Commandment, tells the story of a young boy and his father and uh, it's an hour long and without giving too much of the details uh, away from the film uh, the cold weather actually plays a very important part in the film's story because uh, the story is essentially about uh, whether technology can predict weather patterns and so these two characters kind of rely on what the technology is telling them about the weather and it leads to kind of catastrophic consequences for them um, so it sounds actually kind of, I, I don't know, that, that it's kind of maybe killing the description of it, but it's actually visually a beautiful uh, film. There's a lot of uh, deep kind of philosophy in it about the nature of technology and religion and kind of family relationships. Um, and uh, it's beautifully filmed. It's my favorite of the Decalogue episodes, and the Decalogue is one of my all-time favorite uh, movies, period. So um, the Decalogue episode one, best use of snow I can think of in any movie. Fabulous work. So you're going to give us okay. crap for the films we pick, and then your number one is 10% of a film? <laughs> well, I would also say that some of the other episodes of the Decalogue have snow in them. Like, I believe number six has snow. <laughs> and I think... <laughs> but, uh, okay. yes, okay, I'm prepared Zach, to... I gotta ask you, like, how how do you honestly not pick The Sweet Hereafter as one of your... Of your five best snow films. I was I was contemplating that, but I, again, the sweet hereafter has a lot of scenes that don't take place in the snow, like especially some of the flashback sequences, and then even the sequences in the present day, like with his daughter and in the current current present day. Those those aren't necessarily in the snow, but that is an excellent movie. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. buy it. There's no way that. <laughs> That had to have been your top five. Come on, man. The Decalogue episode one is better than The Sweet Hereafter, but The Sweet Hereafter was... But The Sweet Hereafter is actually a whole movie. Yeah, Yeah. you might as well just take in the second to last episode of Breaking Bad. I mean, why not? Yeah, that's very true. I was contemplating using that episode as, as one of my picks, but... I mean, I don't know. I, th- this is a list about best use of snow, best snowy films. Like, I mean, why not be a little unconventional, right? All right, <laughs> let's move on right. to my number one. Uh, with my number one, we have a crossover. We have a film in common because uh, my number one is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, incredible wow. film. All the stuff that Todd had mentioned before. Um, one of the things I love about it, Charlie Kaufman, his script for this, his his brainchild is in, insane. I wish he would do more. Um, but it's it's my number one, one of Jim Carrey's best performances, one of Kate Winslet's best performances, and it has plenty of snow in it, Zach. So, Eternal Sunshine, 
Plus, Charlie Kaufman probably had a, a lot of snow at the same time uh, to come <laughs> up with this film. <laughs> well, him and Donald that's probably sure. have a that's, that's true, that's true. Him, him and Donald. Donald definitely had to help on this one, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, well, yeah, number one, Terry, Eternal Sunshine. The, the movies that I thought that you would have that you didn't were... Uh, uh, it's a Wonderful Life and uh, the Chronicles of Narnia movies, but that didn't work out. And Die Hard 2, which was on your tied for fifth, so whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my number one is one of my favorite movies. It's called Runaway Train. It's directed by Andre Konchalovsky, and it was from 1985. And the movie is about a runaway train. Uh... <laughs> It's uh, by a screenplay by Kurosawa. It's about escaped convicts Manny and Buck. And uh, those are John Voight and the man, Eric Roberts. Uh, they hop aboard a train and uh, they soon realize there's no brakes or no engineer. And uh, it's rolling through Alaska in winter and uh, the snow obviously just like ups the stakes for the characters and the survival it makes it that much more difficult and brutal and it's one of it's the best action movie I've ever seen and one of the best movies I've ever seen and uh, my number one of 1985 ridiculously edited it's awesome movie Runaway Train alright so there are our top fives let's do a quick recap Zach run us back through your top five Number five, Atanajara at the Fast Runner. Number four, Let Me In. Number three, Force Majeure. Number two, Sister. And number one, The Decalogue, Episode One. And my top five, number five, Rocky Four. Number four, Frozen. Number three, Into the Wild. Number two, Home Alone. Number one, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Todd, your top five. Uh, my top five were Let the Right One In. The Endurance Shackleton's Legendary Antarctic Expedition, Snow Angels, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and Runaway Train. So I think Any that honorable means... mentions there, Terry? Well, I think that means that Todd, you won the you won the pool again. I know, I said one. You said I, one. I, I thought it was gonna be Snow Angels, I didn't think it was gonna be Eternal Sunshine, but yeah, I got it right. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well my my honorable mentions I already mentioned Die Hard Two and Lars and the Real Girl. Uh, did you guys have any honorable mentions? I had uh, Edward Scissorhands, The Hateful Eight, and The Sweet Hereafter. Um, I, well, I had the second to last episode of Breaking Bad. Um, I'm trying to think of random movies where there are like five minutes of snow because, you know, that was like on all your lists. Um, maybe the scene from like <laughs> Citizen Kane. I don't know. I want to go back to Runaway Train, though, for a second. I completely agree with that pick, Todd. Um, actually, that probably should have been on my list. That is an awesome movie. Uh, so in, in complete sincerity, 100% agreement. Eric Roberts is the man. I love how the John Voight character in that movie, the warden hates him so much that he actually lets him escape from the prison just so he can go back and uh, like uh, get, get him and punish him. I mean, that's an awesome movie with two of the great performances of the 1980s. Touche. And the basis, and the basis for Speed, which is one of my all-time favorite movies as well. Our two there favorite we action movies of all time. That's awesome. <laughs> well, well, now now it's a true podcast. We've talked about uh, a history of violence, Die Hard, and Speed. <laughs> so we are we are on a roll here. Okay, before we move on from our power rankings, I told you we had a competition. Uh, prepared for this 
and this competition is surrounding our power rankings and what we are going to do now is we are each going to guess Adam's top five snow movies. Uh, he has emailed me his list. I have not looked at it. None of us have had any conversations with him around these lists. So we are going to reveal what we think Adam's top five is. And whoever wins out of this will have the honor of picking the topic for the next power ranking. So the way the competition is going to work is whoever gets the most correct off of Adam's list uh, will win. If there is a tie, what we'll do is whichever whoever has the highest ranked one on his list correct will win, and then we'll go down to second highest and third highest and so on and so forth. Uh, so, uh, Zach, you started with the power rankings, so why don't you start by revealing what you think Adam's top five snow movies are, are uh, going to be. Okay, number five, I'm going Home Alone. Number four, the awesome uh, sequel, Home Alone 2, with a cameo by our current president. Number three, The Revenant. Number two, The Hateful Eight. And, no and number one, Adam's number one snow movie, which I'm surprised was not on your list, Terry, was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Ooh, good one. Good one. Mm. Okay, okay, so for me, here's what I think Adam's list is going to be. Number five... I'm going to do any of the animated Batman movies. I don't know what any of the titles are, but I think one of them is going to be on his list. Number four. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, It's a Wonderful Life. Number three, The Empire Strikes Back. Number two, The Hateful Eight. And number one, The Revenant. All right. And my top five, I got number five, Frozen. Number four, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Number three, The Shining. Number two, The Revenant. And number one, War for the Planet of the Apes. Damn it, Todd's going to win this. I know I am. I told you. <laughs> I had this. Why did we do this competition? It's pointless. <clears throat> well, they, they do know what the other is thinking. Okay. Here we go. Adam's... Adam's top five. Oh, he's got he's got three honorable mentions here. Um, his honorable mentions are The Gray, Misery, and Frozen. Mm -hmm. Not the Disney movie, the horror film from 2010. Oh, oh, that's the one about the people that get caught up on the ski lift, yeah. right? So there's his honorable that, mentions. That was the one I was talking about, right? <laughs> All right, here comes the top five. Number five, Snowpiercer. Uh, good one. Number four, The Thing. Oh, I actually had that and I deleted it. Number of course. Number three, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. There we go. Number two, The Revenant. And number one, The Shining. That's three. <laughs> you didn't even. I can't believe you didn't have Planet of the Apes on there. That's crazy. <laughs> How did you not have The movie. Hateful Eight or Empire Strikes Back? I mean, how does he not... Or Home Alone. <laughs> I don't know. Home Dude, Alone the, the scenes on Hoth were not that... They're, like, they're only like a third of the movie was on Hoth. Like, th there's a reason why you didn't have Empire Strikes Back, right? Yeah, yeah. It had, Empire Strikes Back had more more snow than Into the Wild did, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I didn't choose Into the Wild. Empire Strikes Back was on the cutting than, room for me. <laughs> both of them had more snow than Eternal Sunshine, the Spotless Mind, but... That's well, all true. of them had more snow than the entire Decalogue. 
<laughs> hey, you no, don't know I'm... that. That's only I speculation. That. I watched it. <laughs> All right, so I believe that 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 crowns Todd as the winner of uh, of the charade here. Of course. Todd's a double winner. Yeah, yeah. All right. I know. I even had a movie. I just had the wrong movie with that same title in this. How about the entry. best desert movies next time? <laughs> <laughs> Was there a desert scene in Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind? You could put that on your list. Uh, to finish out our uh, our podcast, well, not quite finish out. Uh, it is time for Oscar trivia. Todd is the master. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oscar trivia. So, we have uh, Todd and Zach here again for uh, for Oscar trivia, so we're going to do another showdown to see uh, who can get the most uh, right in the major categories from a specific year. And this time, we're going to have a little something writing on it. So we're going to, uh, I'm going to keep track of points. And see who does the best. Here's here's what how the points are going to work. If uh, if one of them can't finish out the category, uh, the other will get a point. For every uh, for every nominee that the uh, the other person can get after someone bows out of a category, they will also be awarded another point. And then at the end of it. Whoever has the most points will be crowned the winner of this round of Oscar trivia. And what will happen is the winner will get to select a film that the other has to find, watch, and uh, review on our next podcast where the three of us are all together. Well, it sounds like we might have our films picked out, you know, like Joe and Sister. (laughs) That's true. We might already have them picked out. Uh, no, it okay. might be Catch Me If You Can, you know. Uh, That'd be a tragedy. Okay. That is a snow movie. <laughs> okay. Uh, everybody understand how this is going to work? Yes. Okay. Are you guys ready? Yes. Your year yeah. for Oscar trivia is 1979. I'll give you a second to, to kind of wrap your head around that. No peeking, no cheating. All right. 1979 is your year. We are going to flip a coin for uh, for who goes first. Uh, Todd, you call it. Heads or tails? Tails. It is tails. Todd goes first. So, Todd, best picture. 1979. Uh, that would be Zach's ridiculous number one of all time, Kramer versus Kramer. That is correct. Zach? That's incorrect. It's no longer my number one of all time, but that's okay. Um, oh, shocking development. Breaking news, everybody. Yes. that. Yes. Uh, another nominee that year for Best Picture was All That Jazz. Correct. Norma Ray. Correct. Being there? Incorrect. That ah. awards Todd with a point. Todd, do you have any of the other two? Apocalypse Now. No. Yes. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Do you have the last one? Uh, 
breaking away. There it is. All right, Todd goes out to a commanding 3 nothing lead. All right. So that goes to Zach. Best actor. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, Kramer versus Kramer. Correct. Uh, Roy Scheider, all that jazz. Correct. Uh, Peter Sellers being there. Correct. Uh, I got nothing. Todd has nothing, which gives Zach a point. Zach, if you can come up, board. if you can come up with the other two, you can uh, tie them up. <sighs> uh, John Voigt for the champ. Nope. Yeah. Todd, you were going to be very disappointed you missed these two. Jack Lemon in the China Syndrome. Oh. And Al Pacino and Justice for All. Oh, Todd. Yeah, Devastating. I have gotten those. Yeah, you should have. You should have. You really should have. Okay. Couple so you can make it up now. Guys. You can make it up now with Best Actress. Todd, you're first. Uh, uh, Sally Field, Norma Ray. Correct. Jane Fonda in the China Syndrome? Correct. Um. No. I don't have it. He doesn't have it. Zach with another point. It is three to two. Zach, do you have any of the other three? Marsha Mason for, uh. Uh. Chapter two? Correct. Marsha Mason was nominated. All right. <laughs> Do you have any of the other two? Oh, uh, I can I can you keep can going. You can keep going and get more, um, yeah. Uh, no clue. I'll give All up. All right. The other two are Jill Clayburgh for Starting Over and Bette Midler for The Rose. All right. We have a tie game, three to three. Yeah. And it goes to Zach for Best Supporting Actor. Okay, well, Melvin Douglas for uh, 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 the, uh, being there. Correct. Justin Henry, Kramer vs. Kramer. Correct. <sighs> Mickey Rooney for The Black Stallion. Correct. Robert Duvall, Apocalypse Now. Correct. I give up. I'm out. Alright, Todd gets the point. Todd, do you have the last one for one more point? Was it, uh... I feel like it was, like, uh, someone from Breaking Away with, like, Christopher Cross or something? Nope. Frederick Forrest for The Rose. Ah. Uh, yeah. That was a, it's too easy. <laughs> Alright. Moving to Todd. Best Supporting Actress. Meryl Streep, Kramer vs. Kramer. Correct. And Jane Alexander, Kramer vs. Kramer. Correct. I... I don't know. <laughs> I think we're uh, establishing a pattern that Todd doesn't know the actresses. <laughs> Zach gets the point. Zach, do you have any more to, uh, to take the lead? I sure do. Muriel Hemingway in Manhattan. That is correct. Uh, Anything else? Right. You got two more to go. Uh, no, that's all I have. 
All right, the other two are Barbara Berry for Breaking Away. Mm. And Candace, See, that was a good performance, too. And Candace Bergen for Starting Over. Okay, now we are moving to... Zach, it's your turn, correct? Yeah, because Todd said Meryl Streep. Best Director, Zach. Robert Benton, Kramer vs. Kramer. Correct. Francis Ford Coppola, Apocalypse Now. Correct. Bob Fosse, All That Jazz. Correct. Barbara Barry, Breaking Away. Incorrect. Point goes to Zach. Zach, do you know the other two? Peter Yates for Breaking Away. Correct. And was the other one Hal Ashby for Being There? No. Ah, okay. So Zach has the lead. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Zach's got the And you said Peter Yates. That's right, okay. Peter Yates. So you, all right. The one that you guys missed was Edward Molinaro for La Cage oh, of La Cage of Yeah. Uh, so Zach has a 7-4 to four lead. Moving into screenplay, we've got two more categories to go. Uh, so we'll go to Todd. Best original screenplay. You don't have to say who wrote it on these. Just give me the name of the film. Uh, I think it was Breaking Away. Correct. <laughs> Um, all that jazz. Correct. Manhattan. Correct. Being there. Incorrect. Todd takes the point. Ah. Todd, do you know the other two? If you do, you can tie the game. China syndrome. Correct. Nice. Uh, I don't know. Lacaja Falls. Birdcage. Incorrect. That would have been my guess too, Todd. You you would have been you would have been you uh you would have been better off going with the other obvious one you missed earlier. And Justice for All was the other best original screenplay. Damn it. Okay, so we have a seven to six game going into our last category, best adapted screenplay, and we go to Zach. Kramer versus Kramer. Correct. Apocalypse Now. Correct. Norma Ray. Correct. The Birdcage. Correct. So Zang there. Incorrect. How did that not get a screenplay nomination? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's a great movie. Todd, if you can come up with this last great screenplay. Great basketball Jones, too. <laughs> if you can come up with this last screenplay, you win. Otherwise, it ends in a tie. I, I really don't know. <laughs> Alright, the last screenplay is A Little Romance. Oh. George Roy Hill wrote it. Does, do I win because I know that? George, George Roy Hill did not write it. <laughs> oh, okay, well. Alan, <laughs> Worth a Alan shot. Burns wrote it. Okay, so we have a tie, which we were not expecting, so I'm coming up with a tiebreaker as we speak. Here's what our tiebreaker is going to be. We are going to go through the technical categories one by one, just saying the winners. We're going to start with Todd, since he's the one that started it out. Todd will get the first one. If he can get it correct, Zach has to match, or else it's over. If he gets it incorrect, Zach has to get his right for it to be over. All right, understand? And we're just going for the winner. All right. 
So, Todd, we'll start with best cinematography. I imagine it was probably Apocalypse Now. That is correct. So, Zach, you have to get this one right for the game to keep going. Best art direction, set direction. Apocalypse Now? Incorrect. It was all that jazz. Todd, you are the champion of of, uh, our Almost Sideways Oscar trivia. That's right. So, you get to pick a film that Zach has to watch at some point over the next month and tell us about on the next podcast. Uh, do you have one in mind now, or do you want to, uh, or do you want to wait and uh, think about it a little bit? I gotta think about this. This is an important decision. It's time to wrap us up with our quote of the day. Strawberries, not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. For quote of the day, uh, I'm gonna start us out. My quote that I'm going to leave you with is from my number one snow movie, uh, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. Uh, it is a quote from uh, from Jim Carrey's character, Joel, and I think it sums up our podcast pretty well. Uh, at one point in the movie, Joel says, constantly talking isn't necessarily communicating. And I think that pretty well sums up our podcast today. Yeah. Uh, Todd, what do you okay. have for your uh, for your quote of the day? Alright, coming from my number one snow movie, Runaway Train, it's John Voight's character, Manny. Uh, He says, uh, I can last nine more months for an appeal. I can stand nine months on my head. (laughs) And and that is a a classic John Voight line right there. (laughs) Classic. Classic. Alright, Zach, quote of the day. Uh, mine comes from my favorite 2007 film, The Mist. Um, I'm being sarcastic when I say that. It's the uh, wonderfully Golden Raspberry Award-winning, should have been award-winning, Marcia Gay Harden as Mrs. Carmody. The classic line, The end of times has come, not in flames, but in mist. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So we will leave you right with there. that lovely thought. And uh, wrap up uh, <laughs> this episode of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Again, find us all over the internet. Uh, like us, uh, review us, rate us on iTunes, subscribe so you can uh, be informed when we're putting out new stuff. Uh, again, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. So that was a disaster. Catch you on a Monday.